this day today. Uh, you got something? Sorry. 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 Yeah, me too. Um, let's pray before we get started, because I know what sunburn does is it puts you to sleep, so we have to work hard to keep you awake. Are you ready? Okay, let's pray. God, we thank you so much that we can be together tonight, and we thank you for this, um, this series you've got us on, where you're speaking to us about what it means to be the kind of church that gets out into the world, that makes a difference, that gets your heart for things, and that wants to be uh, a people that actually make a difference and don't just talk about it. So be with us tonight, God, and be with us um, as we speak through um, some things together tonight, and we pray that everything that's from you, God, would stick, and that everything's not would just fall away. We really just want your heart for us as a, as a community. So be with us, we pray and speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I'm going to try very, very hard not to mention the sharks tonight. It's probably not going to happen. I'm going to try. I'm just going to say that in front of you. Got it off first. first off, I'm going to try hard. I'm sure that's probably going to be quite difficult. We're going to chat about Jonah tonight. Oh, by the way, it's great to see some... Um, um, more mature people here this evening. Um, we hope it's not a once-off. It's great to have you, and we hope you keep coming back and invite your friends. <laughs> this is also your church. Um, it's not different, it's, uh, and you're always welcome, so it's great to see you. Don't wear pink next time. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. So if you want to flip to Jonah, Jonah's might uh, be uh, a mission to find. I have to rustle the Bible pages. You pagans, you didn't bring any Bibles, did you? Okay, I'm going to have some of it up on the screen tonight. Tonight we're going to go through the whole book. So we're going to hit a whole book this evening in, in one sermon. And we're going to try and hit it at the beginning so that we can get to some other stuff as well. So we'll see how that goes. Um, we're going to start, obviously, Jonah chapter 1. And, and we're going to get stuck into the story tonight. And then we'll unpack some of it of what it means to us um, as a group here and sort of as the church. Jonah was a guy who was a prophet um, in Israel about sort of 800 BC-ish. So do you remember a few weeks ago we spoke about Daniel? That was a few hundred years later. So we're going even further back than we were with Daniel. A guy came to this guy, prophet Jonah, and, and what a prophet would do is he would be someone who'd pray hard and hear from God what God would have to say to his people. Then he'd get out into the streets and he'd tell the people, this is what God says. So that's a prophet's job, is to hear from God and give it to the people so that they could hear and hopefully change their community. So God comes to Jonah and God says, Jonah, I've got a job for you, which is what you want to hear when you're a prophet, until he hears the mission. And God says to Jonah, Jonah, I want you to go to the Ninevites and I want you to tell them that they need to sort themselves out and turn to me and, and stop doing the things that they're doing and start to worship me. Otherwise, destruction is coming. So um, Jonah uh, has a problem with this. And we'll have a quick look at why. Um, you remember this map from last time uh, when we spoke about Daniel. So Jonah is here in Israel. That looked kind of familiar. If it doesn't, you probably failed geography. Um, up there is Nineveh. Now Nineveh, if you remember, is the, is the sort of headquarters capital of the Assyrian territory. Now remember last time we spoke about the fact that right down there in the corner of Babylon, they were the guys who came through and had to fight Assyria so they could get through and start to conquer the rest of them. So this is the time when Assyria was just starting to get going. So we're back a few hundred years. Now the problem is, is Assyria conquered right the way down. Can you see Damascus? Just on the northern border there of Israel. They conquered right the way down and up a bit and across a bit. So they're already quite a threat. Okay? They're, they're, they're not the kind of people you want to mess with. They're right on the doorstep. And the people of Israel know, they've heard rumors about destruction coming from the north and God saying that there's going to be an army that comes and sorts you out. So obviously they can see it's probably going to be these guys. Now, we often look at the picture of, of Jonah and the story of Jonah. And we go, well, the reason Jonah didn't really want to go um, and tell the Ninevites is just because it was a lust. You know, it's far and... And, and, it's, and it's going to be difficult because sometimes people don't listen to you. What you might not know about Jonah is that he's a racist. Jonah's a racist. Yeah, no, Jonah's a, Jonah's a racist. We'll get into it now. You're very short. Jonah's... Because Jonah is happy as a prophet to talk to Israel and say, sort yourself out. Because God is coming, and if we don't sort ourselves out and make ourselves right, punishment's going to come, destruction's going to come. But those guys, those guys do not get to hear about God. 
And that he definitely doesn't want them, he definitely doesn't want Clark to bless them because they're right on his doorstep, probably wanting to come in and kill everyone he knows. And that did eventually happen. So if he knows that if he doesn't go tell them, then God's just going to come and wipe them out and do the job for him. So he doesn't want to go and do what God's asked him to do and go and tell them, turn from your ways, turn to God so that he will save you. You might think, well, probably not true. We'll, we'll get to it later. You'll see what I'm talking about. So Jonah, um, that would have taken him a couple of weeks to travel all that way. Um, Jonah, so you've got there Israel, and he would have had to travel across to Nineveh. Jonah, Jonah decides, no, uh, Nineveh, not for me. Uh, I don't like those people that really want them to hear about you, God, and I definitely don't want them to sort themselves out because you'll be nice to them. So I'm going to go here. He wasn't subtle. <laughs> uh, uh, he decides that, like, I mean, this is the known world. This isn't just like we just know it's Europe, you know? That's, that's like, you know, kind of just a little bit more. This is everything, most of what they knew in those days. You put down into Africa a bit, maybe across into India a bit, maybe up as far as sort of the UK, but the, not really much more than that. So he decides, probably looks at a map, okay, this is all we've got, okay, that's Nineveh. Done. Okay, sweet. So he goes down to the local port, he says, like, okay, ship, I, I, I need to get as far as I can. That Nineveh's east, you hear that? I want to go west. Just take me until like, you run out of ports to stop at. I'll get off at the last one. Basically, last stop on the train. So he hops on this boat, and he starts across the Mediterranean Sea. The problem is, is those days, like, ships, I mean, we often go, Jonah gets onto a ship, you know? And we sort of get this thing in our mind, a picture of, like, a Spanish galleon, or, or like, one of these Victorian things with cannons. That was not what Jonah got onto. Likely, it was, it was uh, not much better than a, than, a, than a very rickety cargo ship. Most of the stuff that went across there. I mean, now when you get on a ship, you, you probably, you know, 99% chance, and this is a Titanic, you're going to make it to your next port of call. Those days, 50-50, really. I mean, like, if, if there was a strong breeze, you're in trouble. So you have, to, you have to be quite careful. So he hops on this thing and starts to make his way across this thing in, in, in a reasonably small um, sort of cargo ship, heading for Tarshish. Okay? And in the middle of the Mediterranean, God decides, no, you're not know that way. So he sends in a storm. Okay? Now, panic breaks loose on this boat. They're, I mean, they're throwing things overboard to try and lighten it, anything they can do, because they know ship's not probably going to make it. And they start praying to all their gods. Let's cover all the bases. Who do you, let's do that one. You do, yeah, Bob. Pray to Bob. And just worship and like, pray and go crazy. Jonah is sleeping down in the bottom of the boat. And someone remembers, oh, we need to get another one. He might have another god. So they run downstairs and they go, wake up. How can you sleep at a time like this? And he, he kind of shakes the sleep off. He's like, okay. And comes upstairs and he's like, pray, pray, pray. So they all start praying to their gods. And then they decide, okay, someone on this ship has irritated one of the gods. <laughs> because this is, like, bad. The storm's getting worse and worse and worse. So they take lots, which is just basically like dice or, or, or something you just throw down with markings so that they could... They could, so it was like a game of chance needs to play. And let's work out by chance. Chance will allow the guys to tell us whose mistake this is. So they throw this down and it lands on Jonah. Okay? God is not simple. Um, and Jonah's walking there going, oh, uh, yeah, okay. Um, and then they start, it's a great passage in the Bible, because they start firing off 20 questions at him. I don't know how they fit so many questions in the middle of a storm. They go like, where are you from? What do you do? Uh, what, what, are you, what are you doing what with your life? Um, Shark support supporter, you know, I mean, they just go through this long list of, sorry, that's what I did, I did! I'll stop now. And then, and then, and then um, it, it, he starts to tell them his story. I don't know how this worked, with like, all around them and sinking and throwing things overboard. But they, he starts to tell them his story, and he says, uh, God came and asked me to do something, and I'm, I'm basically running away, I'm, I'm not keen. And they're like, well, what, what God do you serve? Oh, you know, the God who made everything. How far do you think you're going to get? Do you know what I mean? Like, like how, how much sense does that make? So they go, okay, right, okay, you've, you've angered God. So, so they start to pray more, and they start to throw things overboard, and they're, it's just not working. Nothing is coming right. They all start to redirect their prayers from all their different gods to this God who Jonah worships, the God who made everything. And, and they start to say, please, you know, we're sorry. He's sorry. We're sorry for him. Please don't kill us all. It's not fair. And then, and then throwing more things over, nothing works. So they said, what, what do you think we should do? And Jonah says, well, I think you're going to have to throw me overboard. Now, if, if you're in the middle there, that's not a pond, right? That, that's big. You, you're, not, you're not going to swim to shore in the middle of a storm. You're going to die. You, you're not going to. There's no ways you are going to live that. There's just no ways. Unless, you know, an act of God, incidentally, we'll get to him soon. 
So they sort of then decide, uh, that, you know, they eventually decide, okay, we're going to, I mean, they're trying to get to shore first, the Bible says, but it's not working. So they, so they take him and they pray to this one God who made everything and they say, God, we're sorry, okay, he did it and, and we're going to throw him overboard. Please don't blame us for killing him. It's crazy, you know, like, just wash my hands. I, he said we had to do it. So they throw him overboard and instantly the waves calm. Which must be quite funny, actually, I think, because he's probably bobbing there just below the ship, and he's like, no, he can let me, no way. <laughs> and he's bobbing up and down there, and they're sailing away, and they start to worship God. Already, Jonah's done some evangelism without knowing it. It wasn't really what he planned to do, probably, but that's how he's ended up doing it. And, and he's, he's floating in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea, and God, you know, he's, he's probably thinking to himself, I'm going to die. We know from the next chapter, he starts to pray and just, you know, probably ask God to save his life in some way. And, you know, I'll do anything, you know, I can do. I'll do anything, whatever you are, I'll, I'll be a missionary. You know, whatever it takes, I'll do anything. And, and God sends a big fish to swallow him. No? Not a shark. Because sharks don't swallow as much as they <clears throat> food process you. So, so uh, he's swallowed by this big fish. Okay? And he's inside this fish. And chapter 2, we're going to read chapter 2 together, because it's not together, I'll read it to you. But chapter 2 is just Jonah's prayer from inside this fish. And listen to how his heart's changed, like pretty quickly, as you would, because you're you know, in a fish. Um, motivation. Uh, it said, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from inside the fish. He said, I cried out to the Lord in my great trouble, and he answered me. I called to you from the land of the dead, and Lord, you heard me. You threw me into the ocean depths, and I sank down to the heart of the sea. The mighty waters engulfed me. I was buried beneath your wild and stormy waves. Then I said, O Lord, you have driven me from your presence, yet I look once more towards your holy temple. So I sank beneath the waves, and the waters closed over me. Seaweed wrapped itself around my head. I sank down to the very roots of the mountains. I was imprisoned in the earth. Whose gates lock shut forever? But you, O Lord my God, snatched me from the jaws of death. As my life was slipping away, I remembered the Lord, and my earnest prayer went out to you. In your holy temple, those who, uh, in, uh, you in your holy temple, those who worship false gods turn their backs on all God's mercies. But I will offer sacrifices to you with songs of praise, and I will fulfill all my vows. For my salvation comes from the Lord alone. Then the Lord ordered the fish to spit Jonah out onto the beach, which must have been fairly unpleasant. Inside this fish, Jonah decides, okay, like my job is to be a prophet, and I've blown it, I've gone the other way, uh, and, and this has happened. Now, God, if, if you would save me now, I will fulfill my vows. So he, God orders this fish to spit him back up onto the land, and he decides to make his way to Nineveh. And Jonah chapter 3 is simply Jonah going to Nineveh. Now, the Bible describes Nineveh as this great city, um, big uh, and it, was, it would have been very impressive to Jonah. He, he went to this city, and the Bible describes it as it would have taken three days to see everything. Ooh. <laughs> Which, in those days, that was impressive. Like, I mean, you won't, you won't see Long Street in three days in Cape Town. But, like, in those days, it was a big deal. Like, it was a very big city. And he went in, um, and the Bible says, it doesn't say that he went in and said, uh, if you don't sort yourself out, God's going to punish you, so turn to God. The only thing it says that Jonah says is, in 40 days you're all going to die. That's all it says that he says, which isn't really like the message God told him. In 40 days, you're, you're all going to die. You, your mom, dad, kids, dog, you're all, you're all going to die. That's his message. Now, that's some terrible evangelism. If, if you want to, don't do that, because it's, it, doesn't, it doesn't work, it probably alienates people, and also it's probably rubbish. So he went in, and that's what he did. And then, and then the, the worst thing that could have happened in Jonah's mind happens, and, and everyone, en masse, the whole city goes, ooh, um, we need to stop, and we need to worship your God. So the king sends down orders. He takes off his royal robes, he puts on sackcloth, he puts ash all over himself, he sits down and ashes himself, and, which was a sign of mourning and repentance, and I'm, I'm turning from the bad things I did to the good things that God wants me to do. And he orders his whole city to do the same. Everyone must wear sackcloth, everyone must fast, and they must pray. They must stop eating, they must stop drinking, even the animals must stop eating and drinking, which is shame. But that's how serious they were. And you need to pray that God will not destroy us in 40 days. That we've actually turned ourselves around in time 
and that he would relent from sending this disaster. And the end of chapter 3 says, God had mercy on the city and did not send this disaster. Now, here's where Jonah's slightly prejudiced side comes in, in chapter 4. And we'll, uh, we'll I'll read this to you as well. Um, yeah. Listen to what he says. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you're a merciful and a compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. And, and you're eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predict will not happen. The Lord replied, is it right for you to be angry about that? I mean, you can see, he, he went there with one thing in mind. These guys must die. Okay, you know that the guy has an agenda here. That's what he wants. He's there so that he can tell people they're going to die in 40 days, then they're going to die in 40 days, then he's going to go home and tell his wife and kids he had a good day at the office. But like, God, as usual, you know, merciful and compassionate, they say sorry and you're all fine with it. You know, I mean, it's ridiculous. Then Jonah went out to the east side of the city and made a shelter to sit under. As he waited to see what would happen to the city, and the Lord God arranged for a leafy plant to grow there. And soon it spread its broad leaves over Jonah's head, shading him from the sun. This eased his discomfort, and Jonah was very grateful for the plant. So he's sitting on the outside of the city, having a fat sulk in the hot sun, and God sends this plant that covers him and shades him and gives him a bit of uh, shelter from the weather. But God also arranged, because God's trying to make a point, for a worm. The next morning at dawn, the worm ate through the stem of the plant so that it withered away. And as the sun grew hot, God arranged for a scorching east wind to blow on Jonah. The sun beat down on his head until he grew faint and wished to die. Death is certainly better than living like this, he exclaimed. Then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry that the plant died? Yes, Jonah retorted, even angry enough to die. Jonah's got guts. Um, if a little dense. Then the Lord said, you feel sorry about the plant, though you did nothing to put it there. It came quickly and died quickly. But Nineveh, more than 120,000 people living in spiritual darkness, not to mention all the animals, shouldn't I feel sorry for such a great city? So he's sitting there and he's sulking, and this plant grows up, and it gives him shade. It serves him, it gives him something that he wants. And all of a sudden, the plant's his best friend. And then God kills the plant, and he's mad. And, and all these emotions and these kind of reactions that Jonah's having to this situation, he's having to a plant, but doesn't care a jot for 120,000 people who he quite happily just perish and never exist anymore because they're his enemies and they're people who aren't like him and he doesn't want them to be around. They're people that he's not interested in. You see, Jonah made a big mistake because he forgot what Israel was about. See, when God came to Abraham, in Genesis 12, he says to Abraham, Abraham, I am going to make you into a great nation. Your descendants are going to be as many as the, as the grains of sand on the seashore, as the stars in the night sky. That's how great your descendants will be. And the purpose of this nation that I'm going to build is going to be to bless all the nations. It's not about you guys. It's about so that you will be together as a community and be my example and my blessing to all the peoples of the world. If Jonah realized that, he could not. It might have been difficult to go to people that are standing on your doorstep wanting to come in and kill everyone you know. That's, that's hard. But he would have remembered the mission that God had given him. That his job as someone, as an Israelite, as a person of God, as a Jew, was to go out there and be a blessing to all nations, regardless of who that is. I heard something interesting this week. It was about um, sort of how we develop as human beings. If we can just change tack for a minute. And we start out, it said, being egocentric. And um, some of us never move from there. But we start out being people who are, who are you know, when you're, when you're a baby, you're born and the whole world, everything you know, is about you. So much so that psychologists will tell you there's a thing called object permanence which babies have to learn. So a baby will lie in a cot, okay? And its mom will be there and cooing and stroking hair and all the rest of it and the baby's happy because it's mom and mom loves me. And, and then mom will go away and the child will scream blue murder. 
Okay? And you think, that's a little dramatic. It's not, because in that baby's mind, they're not going, she left the room. If, if, that, if, her, if the, the child's mom has left that child's sensory boundaries, like it can't see her, it can't hear her, can't touch her anymore, she ceases to exist in that child's mind until she comes back again. Which is why when kids wake up in the middle of the night, it's terrifying because there's, everyone disappeared. And I don't know if they're coming back. <laughs> what will I do? That's scary. And then mom comes into the room, oh, you exist again. But then she goes back to sleep, and you're kind of asleep, and you wake up, oh, this is disappeared again. And it's, that's why it's crisis point for a child, because it's only what's in my sphere of, of, of influence. That's what exists. It's a very egocentric, what happens to me, happens to me. And we slowly start to move out of that, but quite slowly. Because, I mean, still, at the age of three or four, you've kind of learned that people exist if they leave the room. But their favorite words at three or four is, no, isn't it, really? Go, tidy, no. Don't you want to go, no. <laughs> you know, no, I mean, because I don't want that, because that doesn't feel good, I don't like that, and, and that doesn't make me, I don't, I know. You know, and it's all about that child. So what do we do? We have to move from an egocentric view, and our tactic, as, as I mean, parents and people who, like, are bringing up kids, is to move from an egocentric view to an ethnocentric view. So you're moving from, from me and my influence to, let's move it out to our community. You know, our group of people, if you start doing that with families, and you say things like, in this family, we brush our teeth. Yeah? In this family, we make our bed. Uh, and we say things like, you know, if, if when I was your age, I did that, my mother would have. Yeah, you've heard that before? Yeah? Because why? Because you're, you're trying to train your child now. It's not about you. It's about our tribe now. And, and we're going to start with our family, and then we're going to move out to bigger things in our society, and what's okay to do in society, and what's okay to do as our, our group. Like, but it starts with, you know, what's okay to do in, in our group of people, and that's what you should be doing. Now, not just what you want, but now it's bigger. Now it's, now it's us as a, as a group. But if it stops there, and this is the problem with Jonah, I, I think maybe there was some egocentricism, like there is in all of us, but I think he was stuck at this ethnocentric place. Like, I, I, I'm out of myself, I'm, I'm, I'm doing difficult things, I'm being a prophet to the nation of Israel, I'm not being popular, but I, I, I'm a Jew, and I'm not moving outside of that, I'm not moving any further than that. I, I'm, I'm in my group of people who are like me, I've been brought up a Jew, we're all Jews, we understand each other, that's where I'm stopping. If we stop there, we stop the good things that God wants to do. If Steve and I are at the Sharks game yesterday, sorry, I, I can see that. Uh, if we're sitting at the Sharks game yesterday, and we're watching the game, and uh, there's a bull supporter sitting right next to us. And he starts to choke on his bull straw. Okay? We have a choice. So don't we? Either we steal the bull straw. Wow. Either, either we can, well, no, you know, he's got a ball's jersey, someone else must help us, like, you know, and watch him choke, or watch the game, rather, because it's more interesting, or, or, we can help the guy, because hopefully our identity, as part of a group, does not stop us doing good for someone else who's in need. You see, the danger is that we, as a group of people, become so identified with our group, that someone who's outside of our group, someone who does not look like us, does not get our help does not get our attention, does not get our, our mercy and our love and compassion because they don't look like our group. And, because, and we, don't, we don't say, I, would, I wouldn't offer it. I just let someone from their group help them. Someone who's like them. Let them help them. I can kind of see that there are problems in that group, but my group's fine and I do. I spend most of my time with my group and, and what, what can I really do? You know, we, we're, we're like, you know, that's, that's how we act. And, and their group, they can sort their thing out. The problem is that God is not about that. God says you need to have a world-centric view. A view that says His mission is as big as the whole world. Yeah. Kind of fits in with our vision, doesn't it? Yeah. That we want to move from an egocentric view of saying, and it's good, it's, there's good stuff in all of this, eh? that we want to be people who are revived within ourselves and made right with God. Then we want to be people who, who, are, who build good and a solid and a healthy community. But then we also want to be people who go on and that we become people who get out there to restore the world, even if people don't look like us. I made rings for rocks because I made like circles. I made circles. 
I, uh, I watched a movie recently called Amazing Grace. Have any of you seen it? Alice has seen it because she's overly enthusiastic. Um, brilliant movie, and, and, none of, and none of the rest of you seen it? Oh, okay. Oh, just shy. Okay. <laughs> it's okay. It's a good movie. Um, the movie is about a guy named William Wilberforce, historical character, um, about the 1800s in, in, in England. And he fought in Parliament for the abolition of slavery. Now, this happened because God came and got hold of him young, early on in his life. And, and he started to feel uh, the things that were important to God. And he wanted to get out there and be a part of making things right. Now, it wasn't easy because from early on, he was pegged as a talented, gifted guy who would definitely move into politics and who may one day be prime minister. I mean, a lot of people think that if he did not stand up for the abolition of slavery, he would have been the prime minister at the time. So he's in parliament and he's doing his thing and he fights. I mean, the, the movie follows his, the incredible fight he has to go through where he's persecuted and pushed to the side, but he stands on his conviction that it is not right for one man to own another man, because in the sight of God, all are equal, Jew, Greek, slave, free, everyone is equal, and we have to move in a redemptive direction where there is no division and ownership, but all people are equal. So he goes to Parliament and he fights for this cause. One of the other characters in this movie is a guy named John Newton. Now, John Newton was a, was a slave ship owner who uh, is on a voyage, and his ship starts to sink because it's part of a storm. Um, and he starts to pray to God. Some things must be ringing a bell. And he, God, save us and you know, help, help me out of this if you do. And you know, like you do. And, and, and God helps him and manages to get him, not that God struggles, gets him back to port. And, and he's okay. And from that moment on, John Newton's life starts to turn around. He starts to drop the vices that he had in his life and the things that were leading him down the wrong track. And eventually he moves out of slavery altogether in the slave trade and says that this isn't right. I feel it. Conviction from God is I've got to know God and God's mission for the world. Slavery is not right. And I'm going to stop. And this ex-slave owner and slave trader goes on and becomes an Anglican priest. And he wrote uh, a number of great hymns. The, the one you'll know is Amazing Grace. That's the guy who wrote Amazing Grace. And one of the most poignant moments in the movie, and I want to play you a quick clip from this movie, is where Wilberforce and, and John Newton have a discussion about how God has changed you know, them and the struggle that they're on. So just watch this clip and we'll, we'll chat about it in a second. This is slaves are flung on the walls. Their arms are tied to a hook on a crane and weights of 56 pounds applied to their feet. The crane is raised so that their feet barely touch the ground. The slaves are then whipped with ebony bushes, come to let out the congealing light. I didn't hear the nip scratching the page. We have company, sir. John. It's me, Wilbur. Leave it. They only told me your sight was fading. Well, now it's faded altogether. I never did things by half. Scott decided I'd clean them up. So it's true. What's true? Writing your account. Uh, I wish you could see your face. How are you looking? Thin. Still too thin. A little fatter lately. Oh, she feeds you well then, this wife of yours. She's given me an appetite. An uh, appetite to change things. This is my confession. You must use it. Names, ship's records, ports, people. Everything I remember isn't here. I thought my memory is fading. I remember two things very clearly. I'm a great sinner and Christ is a great saviour. You must publish it. 
Throw a hole in that boat with it. Damn them with it. I wish I could remember all their names. My 20,000 ghosts. They all have names. Beautiful African names. We call them with just grunts. Noises. We were apes. They were humans. Help me be. I couldn't breathe till I was this. I once was blind, but now I see. Did I write that too? Yes, you did. Well, now at last it's true. Now go with it. We've lots of work to do, you and I. See, we don't, we don't have... Uh... We don't have slavery in South Africa in such an obvious form. Uh, we, we don't have um, problems that are that uh, overt necessarily. But we live in a country that has been through some really, really hard times. And as a white person, it makes me realize that I, I can't sit by quietly and just say that you know I don't have a part to play. I can't, because, because if Christ has done a work in me, and his mission is to restore the world, we're living in a country that's still hurting, and we have things to do. You see, and the, and the worst mistake we could make is to say that, you know, well, it's not my, it's not my job. I, um, I used to preach around quite a lot in Joburg when I was a Baptist college, and one of the churches I ended up preaching at was, a, was, a, was an all-colored church in El Dorado Park. And um, I went there a few times over the years, and, and eventually after the one time, they kind of just got hold of me and they said to me, you know, you, you need to come and work here, because I, I didn't have a church that I was working at at the time. So I prayed about it, and, and I felt God leading me there, and I, I started to go through, my last two years of Baptist College, I started to go through and work with them, um, just help, I ran their music ministry for a while, and did a bit of preaching in the evenings and stuff, and, and um, it, was, it was one of the best church community experiences I've ever had, even though I wasn't like them culturally at all, they, they, it felt like they welcomed me in and everything was really good and I, I, I felt at home and I felt useful and I felt effective for God there and it, and it was good. Um, at the end of my second year at college, they said we want to, um, we want to hire you properly so that you'll actually, you're actually a pastor here and you, you, you get paid for what you do here, which is nice. You know? So I, I went to an interview properly and we sat and we chatted and they said yes. Uh, we, we want you to come. So one Sunday morning, I was ordained there. Um, I was the associate pastor at the church, and uh, everything. I mean, I was I was ready. I was out for a good year, and, and off we were going to go. And, and who knew what was going to happen in the future? And it was going to be great. I just finished up college. This was my first post as a pastor. And um, the, after that Sunday, I, I heard kind of I got via the grapevine message. It was from the worship team saying, "Sean, we want to meet with you uh, on Wednesday night." So I was like, okay, great. Because I'm thinking in my head, you know, awesome, uh, you know, like an officially welcome you uh, party with cake, maybe. So I was quite stoked to be there. And I got, I got there and all the worship teams were sitting there. And um, I could just feel in the room it wasn't what I thought it was. And, and they just said to me, Sean, we have to be honest about something. Um, we, we, we can't have you lead us. It, it, it's, it's going to be too difficult for you to lead us, I'm afraid. Because it feels too much like the apartheid era, having a white guy lead us as colored people. Now, my initial response was defensive. It was, but, but I wasn't even here, you know? I mean, I, I wasn't even in South Africa. I came to South Africa in 96. You already, it was a new government. I wasn't, it, what, what was I saying? It wasn't me, you know, basically. I didn't, I didn't do it, it wasn't me. Don't, 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 you know, I'm a weaker word. You know me, I've been here two years, and you know me. So they kind of uh, closed out the meeting and just said, look, we're going to try and work with this, but it's going, to be, it's going to be really difficult. And I went away kind of reading a bit and quite hurt. And I, I got there on the Sunday expecting 
expecting to kind of be ousted and like put on the side for, for being white. And, and but like I got greeted at the door and hugs all around and how's it how you going? And nothing felt like it had changed with people. I mean, okay, there were a few things that definitely changed, but by and large, nothing had changed with people. The relationships were still the same, and I was confused. I was like, I don't, I don't understand. Like, like surely, like everything's bad. And I mean, I, I quickly slip into everything's bad, but like you know, everything's terrible, and you know, I don't, I don't understand why you're treating me well now. What's what's going on? And one of the guys obviously saw my confusion. It was one of the guys who was at the meeting. Took me aside and said to me, Sean, I, I think you don't understand something. It's not that we don't like you. We know you. You've been with us the whole time. You, we respect you. We love you. We think the ministry you've got here with us is great. But the idea of having someone like you above us hurts because of the hurts that we've had in the past. Now, I may not understand that completely. But I had to learn over a year to respect that. And it, 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 it was difficult, you know, because I kept on wanting to get defensive, but it wasn't me, I didn't do it, you know, it's not my problem, but I'll, I'll you know, I'll, we'll, we'll go get the bad people who did it, but like, you know, it, it, I had to start to understand, okay, I, I don't understand, but, but I'm going to try and understand. And I carried on with that community, I left at the end of the year, just because things were quite difficult with a lot of people, I just moved out, but let me tell you, I mean, I, I went back to the church now in July when I was up there, and, and that is one of the churches I still feel most welcomed back at. And one of my best church experiences to date. I was, I, I was treated and am treated so well by the people there. It's not personal. But there are hurts I don't understand that I need to understand. And it's not good enough for me to sit and say, but it wasn't, it wasn't me. I didn't do it. We're, we're majority white people here tonight. And I want to speak quickly to us. And just say that we need to, I think, move from a place where we're egocentric about ourselves and about our comforts and out of that, out of that, to being well-rounded communities. And then we need to get out of those communities. And we need to go and make things right that were done by other people. And before we move, can I suggest something? That we need to own the mistakes of our tribe. Because you might not specific. I know this is difficult to hear, for, especially younger guys. I know it's difficult to hear. You're like, well, whatever. You know, I, I didn't do it. I don't understand it. I know people talk about it. But it, it is still, those hurts are still there. And if we stood up as people who've been hit by Christ because he's, he's got a hold of our lives and he's started to change our hearts and attitude and let us see the hurts out there. If we stand up and we own the mistakes of our tribe and say, yeah, my people. My, without, without, but not me. My people made those mistakes. But I want to undo them by loving you well. I want, to get, I want to get out of my group, I want to get out of my comfort zone, and I want to love people well. Um, any talk on race wouldn't be complete without some uh, Martin Luther King quotes, so uh, I love these. I think these are exactly what we're talking about tonight. He said, an individual has not started living until he can rise above the narrow confines of his individualistic concerns to the broader concerns of all humanity. Martin Luther King, who was an activist for human rights in the States and was assassinated for his beliefs, who was, who was gunned down for so many things, he also said, every man must decide whether he will walk in the light of creative altruism or in the darkness of destructive selfishness. See, the, the problem starts is when we, when we start to pull things around ourselves in our world so that, so that my world is okay. It's, it's ego. Or, if at best, it's, it's, it's ethnocentric where it's my group of friends who are like me, uh, my church who you know, is looking quite similar these days and is, is quite similar to me. It's, it's not good enough to stay there. We have to, and, and not that we just wait for an opportunity to find somebody to talk to one day on the street, but that we make conscious decisions about moving outside of what we know to go and make things right in the world and, and, and heal hurts that have been caused, because that's our job. Restoring the world means we who've been got a hold of by Christ get out there and make things right. I've got some suggestions. Just a few, just to get you thinking. Because I believe that the church should be a picture of the kingdom of God. And, and let me say, like, when we get to the kingdom of God, there's going to be no difference between black and white and colored 
and, and Indian and Asian and whatever else. There's going to be no difference between us. And we're, we're going to, I'm, I'm pretty sure, feel really stupid that we valued people according to the color of this stuff that happens to cover our, our, our muscles because otherwise maybe things would be sore. You know, it's a little piece of our body, the same as any other piece of our body, but because that's a different color, and then we form cults around it, we, we valued people according to that. I think we're going to feel pretty stupid. So the picture that we're going towards, the place we're moving to, is this place where everything is right and good and the same in our level ground. So we want to be a community, because I think the church's job is to reflect what's coming in the kingdom. So we have to be a group of people that look like that. Now that means that we have to do something, I think. We need to actively seek out relationships with people who aren't like us to break down divisions. It's, it's really simple, isn't it, to get out there because you automatically connect with people who are like you. It's easier. So this is going to take a bit more effort. It's going to take us saying, I'm going to go out and, and build relationships, get out of my comfort zone with people who aren't like me to understand people, to get to know people and to build relationships across boundaries. We need to get out there and invite people who aren't like us to join us and begin to build a diverse community. Can you imagine if, if the way that we meet here on a Sunday night, we have, we have most of the race groups in South Africa represented here, worshipping together. What a picture. And worshipping together well and caring for each other as community and loving each other. What a picture that is for the rest of the world who's struggling to do it. And that's our job. That's our job as God's people, to, to show people what's coming because we believe it's the best way. But that means you and I have to get off our butts and get out there and invite people who aren't like us, who don't, who don't have the same cultural values or the same understandings or the same whatever. Get out there and invite them here and bring them here. Not for a gimmick, not for a trick because we want to have a diverse community, but because we want them to be here because we love them as individuals. Not to, not to assuage our guilt or make us feel good about ourselves, but because it's our job to get out there and to fix things that have been made wrong. But it comes with a bit of a cost. We need to be prepared to change the way we do things in our community to accommodate people who are different to us. If we, if we bring people in, and we must, hey, we, we must get more deliberate about this. If we bring people in who aren't like us, stuff might have to change a bit. Maybe we don't get to sing the song we like to sing all the time. Maybe you have to sing songs that you don't know how to sing. Maybe you have to white people find some rhythm. It's going to be tough. For all of us. <laughs> you know? You know, we, we've all got our thing. We, we, we're all going to struggle with that. We'll, we'll have classes for white people rhythm. Steve will take that. Oh, boy. You know, we, we're going to... But are we willing to make the sacrifices? Or do we want our stuff our way? Because my group of friends here and my things that I like and the way that we usually talk and the songs we usually sing and the stuff we usually do, are we willing to say, I'm going to put that aside and just have a bit of my stuff and a bit of someone else's, a bit of someone else's and to be able to share and not necessarily be at a church that's, that's the consumer item that we want. Are we okay with that? Because we have to ask ourselves those questions because it will happen. And heaven forbid, we invite people to come here and then try and shove them into our mold. That's a crime. Because they have so much to offer us in terms of difference and diversity and ways of worshipping and the rest of it. We also, this is very, very difficult, we also need to adopt an attitude of learning, understanding that we have a very Western view of God and we have a lot to learn. Oh, this is going to be tough for some of you. I'm not saying we need to compromise on Scripture. Scripture is Scripture. But Scripture is not Western. Scripture is what we stand on, and that's the non-negotiables. But when people come in who have an African point of view, and let me tell you, if you speak to African theologians, their take on God might be slightly different to yours, and you might not agree. Are you okay with someone coming in with a different view of God? Who doesn't contradict Scripture, and you don't contradict Scripture, so your non-negotiables are fine. <laughs> You're okay. I'm just coming back, because I know. E emails this week. <laughs> like... You've got your boundaries in place, but are you willing to dialogue with people who might have different views on some things than you? And are you willing not to try and force them to think like you because you're right and you know, you've know you grown up with this and your dad was or whatever and your church does that. Not do that, but to actually talk with people and learn something. Because you will, I promise you. 
You ask missionaries who go overseas and start to work with churches that are just being planted, how their faith and their understanding of God is shaken and stretched like it could be nowhere else. Because they're all of a sudden around a new group of people in a new culture who are seeking God for themselves, with the scriptures in hand, but seeking God for themselves, and how much bigger their view of God becomes. We have to be willing to not be the kind of community that wants to fight with people about little things on the page and details here and there, but to stand on the principles of Scripture and then dialogue and grow as we go. Are we going to be the kind of people that do that? I want to just pray for us. Just give us a minute of, of quiet. You know, I mean, I, I, you, you often hear kind of people preach on this, and it's, it's like, yeah, but, you know, I've got black friends. That's not what we're talking about tonight. We're talking about you reorientating your life from, from selfishness, where it's about comfort, to making yourself uncomfortable to get out there and find and bring people who aren't like you so we can begin to build something that looks like the kingdom of God. I'm just going to give you a minute in quiet. Maybe Gary and uh, Brad can come. Sure. Yeah. Can I just have that thing? Sure. Can I have Yeah. <clears throat> okay. Um, I just want to tell you, if you don't mind, what I did this weekend, and it wasn't me being special, I spent three days in Kailicha. I went to the Kailicha festival. Um, I went because I was paid, actually, uh, <laughs> originally. Um, I've been to Kailicha quite a lot because I've been part of a project that puts computers in all the libraries. So I know the libraries in Kailicha quite well. And we had a truck there this weekend with five computers in and the internet. There was never, from 10 in the morning until 6 in the evening, there was never one moment where there weren't at least five kids around each computer. We, 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 we just treat it as normal. I tell you, their um, enthusiasm just for this toy of this computer with this internet was phenomenal. But anyway, um, so I went to the Kailicha Festival, and I was only supposed to be there three hours a day. I've been there the whole day for three days, because it was absolutely superb. Not be, if it was for several reasons, not, not least just because it was just a really great vibe and a really great thing. But what I was most disappointed about was that I was the only white guy there. There were about six of us. We sort of walk into each other and say, oh, hello. Uh, which was a real shame because we were so well accepted and treated and in fact it was almost embarrassing how pleased people were to see me there and I felt like I've just, I've, I've just come up because I've been paid to be here looking after this truck you know? yeah. uh, and it really was a shame and, and I want to really endorse what, what, what's been said this evening it's not just even uh, we must go there too we mustn't be afraid to go to Kylie it's not a big deal I'll take you <laughs> um, and what we can and um, what they got out of using these computers for, for a few for a few hours each day was clearly huge but I want to endorse also what's been said I had this absolute blast for the whole weekend um, and I really really and that's why I wasn't able to come to practice and play drums sorry <laughs> so uh, yeah I want to really resonate with what you've said this evening especially the last uh, few minutes I mean, uh, just to listen to what Mark said as well, and not to drag anything out, but, but I mean, we, we've got opportunities as a church that you can do right now. I mean, we've, we've got Soup Kitchen tomorrow night, which we always have every Monday night, where you can come along, be at my place at 7, and we'll hop in the commune and go down. Um, there are a few of us that go down, and I, I promise you, there's, there's such a mental thing about barriers in your heads, and they're, they're not real. They're not real. And, and, and the, the overwhelming response is how often you get there and you're embarrassed. Do you know what I mean? Like, there's no, what am I, what am I doing? But unless we make the effort to get out there and to build those relationships and draw people in who aren't like us, we won't see it. And I think that's most of the problem with South Africa at the moment. It's not, it's not that people maybe aren't willing, it's just that they haven't actually taken the step because it's comfortable not to. And they're not being proactive enough. So let's just pray. just want to give you a minute, just in the quiet of your hearts, um, uh, just to think about those things that are made in the boundaries for you. Just ask God by His Spirit, just let those surface, and just ask God by His Spirit to start to take, to take those out of the way, and, and ask Him, and ask Him by His Holy Spirit to give you courage, to give you direction, to put yourself aside, maybe risk yourself as well to get out there and build relationships that you wouldn't normally. To, to make a commitment to get out there and to draw people into this place. People who need Jesus. I'm just going to give you a minute just to allow God to speak to you.
while we were worshiping, um, just right at the beginning, there were people, there were two people walking, walking past the church, and one was a guy and one was a, one was a lady, a, a girl, and um, I just saw, I just saw them, and I could see the guy, he just stopped and he just looked inside, and obviously we had just started worshiping, um, and so he was like, oh, so he just heard the noise, and he just looked and they just carried on walking, and I just felt that maybe um, at the beginning of the service or something, you know, we could, we could kind of, I'm late for church or whatever, and be like, I don't know, go, like kind of stand outside and just, I know one person could just do it like once a week or something and just say, you know, would you like to come in? Would you like to join us? I know it doesn't sound like really much, but I just really felt straight away actually when I saw them, I wanted to go out and just call them, but I thought, no, that could be a bit weird and that's bringing people or, or, or whatever. But I really felt that quite strongly and then, you know, Mark said that and yeah. So it's just something really small, but. And I think we can easily come up with kind of a, kind of like teams of people who do stuff at the church and we have a team of people out on the road. But you know, like in my mind, when we're setting up teams, it's because we're failing to do it on our own. You know, we set up a team of people to welcome because we're all not welcoming people. You know, we're going to set up a team of people who go out and pull people off the road because no one's going to do it. But you know, the, the best thing would be is if we could just hand it back to you. And we could commit together as a community to doing these kind of things, to getting out there and drawing people in. Because if we all did it, it'd be much more effective anyway. We wouldn't need a team. We'd be the team. You know? I'm just going to get Gary to sing. Can you, can you sing Love and Failing? And maybe... Um, well, Gary, Chief. Maybe let's just sing a song together. And... Um, we're gonna we're gonna close with this, and uh, we'll we'll pray afterwards. And just if uh, if you've sat tonight and you said, okay, that's that's a commitment that I want to make. I want to be that kind of person. Perhaps you want to come up and get prayed for at the end, and we'll have people up here to do that with you and share. And if there's anything else as well, I know we've spoken about this tonight. If you're struggling with anything else this evening, you just want prayer or ministry, then then uh, make sure you make your way up. And um, Ross Allen will be at front as well to pray for you and a, a couple of the leaders. So. Uh, yeah, let's stand together.